Amen. First Peter chapter 2. We're going to cover quite a bit of scripture. We're going to cover 10 verses today, believe it or not. We've been covering two to three verses at a time. Um, but we need to speed up just a little bit. And so we're going to try to cover a little more as we begin um, this kind of next school year and we jump back in. I pray that uh, you had a great summer and I pray that you had safe and restful travels and all those things. And I pray for those who have kids starting school this past week or the week before. Um, I pray that uh, they have a great year. And for those who started school as well, uh, for those college students or 30-year-olds who are still in school like myself, I pray that you have a great semester. But as we jump into 1 Peter chapter 2, if you have uh, your notes, we're just go ahead and grab those. I pray that you will just be able to follow along well. But I want to read the first 10 verses of chapter 2. They will be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab a Bible and seat back in front of you. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. If you're with me, just simply say, Amen. Amen. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that it may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I'm going to pause there for a second because this is the passage of Scripture that I'm not going to spend a lot of time on today. So I'm going to give you my two cents really fast and kind of just kind of throw out a few things that the so put away all malice, he's transitioning from chapter 1 where he just talked about the importance of the living Word of God. That in the living Word of God, which is God's Word that was preached to us, made us alive and gave us love for one another. Therefore... To love one another means that we put away malice towards one another. We put away deceit. We put away hypocrisy. We put away envy. We put away slander. Those are ultimately things of the world. They're not things of God and of His Spirit. And so put away those things. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. He's illustratively talking about what he just referred to at the end of chapter 1 as the Word of God. Now, Paul uses this illustration of milk in reference to maturity, and it's not good if you're still on milk. When Paul uses it illustratively, he's saying there comes a point that all children grow past just milk and they move on to solid food. So you too as Christians should move past milk onto solid food. Peter uses this very differently. Peter is not talking about maturity. He's talking about the foundation of biblical teaching, which he's referring to the gospel, the simple preached, which he's saying Long for that pure spiritual milk. Long for that foundational truth. Meaning, yes, grow on to maturity. However, you never grow past the simplicity and the foundation of the gospel that was preached to you, which he's referring to at the end of chapter 1. So for us, when Paul uses it, we get past milk. He's using it illustratively to refer to something different. Peter here is saying never get past milk. Meaning, never get past the foundation. The beginning substance of the word of God, the gospel. And he said, so long for that, and then he ends with verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's simply going, hey, if you've tasted it, long for it. He's giving it by, what he's made, his statement is similar to this. If I tell you honey is sweet, that's one thing. For you to taste honey as sweet, that's a whole different thing. And what he's referring to here is saying, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, long for it. Because you know that it's sweet. You know that it's good. So long for that. So he's referring, if you tasted it, continue to pursue after it. Now, what I want to unpack a little bit more tonight is verses 4 through 10. And so let's continue to read. Verse 4. As you come to him, 
talking about Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So that's his argument. Verse 6, he expands on a little bit. Verse 6, for it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were, de- as they were destined to do. Verses 9 and 10 continue on a similar thought, which we will unpack more next week. So let's just stop there. I said through verse 10, but we'll save 9 and 10 for next week. So verses 4 through 8. If you've got a handout, the simple main point of the sermon is this. The church is being built up as a spiritual house. The church is being built up as a spiritual house. Peter's using illustrative language to refer to some very important foundational truths. And the first is this, truth number one, Christ is our foundation. Christ is our foundation. He says in verse four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Peter would say these same words in Acts chapter 4 when he's talking and he's speaking to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He used the same language and he uses that reference and he actually uses the word cornerstone to explain that Christ was chosen by God, although he was rejected by men. And he's referring to the religious leaders. He's referring to the Roman government in that moment. He's referring to those who crucify him. Jesus was rejected by men, but was chosen by God. A living stone rejected by men. Now, where do we get this idea of living? What does he mean by a living stone. And, and we can, once again, going to Acts chapter 4, we can pull this idea out. Acts chapter 4, let me read verses 10 and 11 where he says this. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Notice that. You crucified, but God raised from the dead. By him, the, uh, this man is standing before you well. They had just performed a miracle through Christ, right? Now verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, um, rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, notice in verse 10, the contrast is crucified by you, but chosen by God means he was resurrected. So when he comes to, he's defining to be rejected means to be crucified, but to be chosen is played out and proven through the resurrection. So when he comes to verse 4, And he says, a living stone, he's referring, I believe, based off Acts 4, he's referring to Christ as the living, meaning resurrected cornerstone. That he is chosen by God, that means when he was rejected by men, he was chosen by the Father to be resurrected, therefore he is living. But he's a stone, he's a cornerstone, and they would have fully understood the reference to cornerstone. Now, one of the things is I'm in New York, and we're in New York, and we look around and especially in the city, um, and I look at these massive buildings. I was 
had breakfast um, with a gentleman a couple weeks ago, and I met him. He's a lawyer, and I met him in his office right off Lexington and 53rd. And I don't remember the building, but we're in the building, and it was a pretty big building. And as we're going up the elevator, it's the first time I've been in this building, and he was telling me a little bit about it, and he was explaining, um, I don't remember when, but after the building was built, um, a doctoral student in engineering, architecture, whatever field it would have been in, was researching this building and came to the conclusion that this building was built unstable. Now, because the building that it's next to is a landmark, they couldn't build the building with four corners, and so it has the solid middle piece is kind of the support. And because of that, the student came to the conclusion that if a 60-mile-per-hour wind hit this building, it would fall over. And so, like... 20, 30 years ago, they began this massive renovation of this building. And now they've built it to where it's safer. But the top floors, they had to pull out. And they created this hydraulic balance system that if the wind's blowing in a certain direction, it automatically will move the weight to the other side just to make sure the building stays stable. Now, I'm listening to this story as we hit about floor 40, right? (laughs) We're about floor 40 going up this building, and I'm listening to this, and I'm just amazed at how you even build such a thing, or how does someone conclude that, or whatever, and I'm just amazed that all the building stands. My wife and I say all the time, because uh, Manhattan's an island, when is it just going to just fall in, right? It it just doesn't make sense to us. It's just going to fall in. For this particular time, Cornerstone was that very first stone that was laid so it was supposed to be foundational to the rest of the building similarly i think of this illustration when we were in guatemala building homes we would kind of plot out where we're going to build but we had to put a corner post first and then we had to do the post correct or directly adjacent to that corner corner post before we could do the post diagonal why because if you didn't start with that cornerstone, or if you tried to build not adjacent to it, eventually you wouldn't be square, you wouldn't be balanced, and the building wouldn't be the way it was supposed to be built. So this corner foundation defined and determined the rest of the building. So I want us to not miss what Peter is saying when he says Christ is the cornerstone. He is saying that Christ is that first rock, foundational rock, That gives the trajectory and the well-being to every other stone that will be laid upon it. But he goes on and gives the beauty that you and I are those stones. And we'll come back to that. But first, let us think about this as Christ as our foundation. The church is being built up as a spiritual house. You and I are the church. When we think about this idea of a building and the church, the church is us when we think about this. And so we are being built upon the foundation of that Christ laid for us. Therefore, the church, it's essential that the church is built. Well, it only possibly can be built in eternity, spiritually speaking, but even practically, that for us as New Hope, our church is built on the foundation of Jesus. There's an article this morning um, in the New York Times, if you saw it, it, it just went, uh, ran this morning, And it came across my attention just as I was perusing the New York Times, as I often do, uh, just to kind of see what's going on and read. And so the article this morning was titled this, The Church Where Believing in God Isn't Strictly Necessary. I read the article because that's super captivating. 
The church where believing God isn't strictly necessary. And it was an article, an op-ed, praising a church where it, it prides itself on not their belief in God, but on what they're doing in the community. Now, let me be clear. I think what they're doing in the community and being for the community and some of those things and the way they're being engaged and loving the community, I love that. Now, I might disagree with some of the ways they're doing it, but I love that idea. This idea of let's, let's live out Christ, whether you believe in him or not, and all these things. And I appreciate that sentiment, but you've got to understand something. You and I don't have a foundation if we don't have Christ. This is what is being clearly taught here by Peter. You don't have a church if you don't have God. You don't have a church if you don't have Christ. So it's an oxymoron for the title, the church, where believing in God isn't strictly necessary because at that point it's no longer a church. This is the point that I'm trying to make that Peter is making clear. For us, as we think about the church being built up as a spiritual house, if we are built on anything other than Christ as the cornerstone, then that building is no longer the church. And I'm not talking about a physical building. I'm talking about spiritual people. I want us to get this. I'm not, uh, when we think about who we are at New Hope and we think about as Christians, there are a lot of different opinions of doctrine. There are a lot of different things like that. And you and I can disagree and care for one another and love on just about anything. Whether you're here as a Christian or not, or whether we're talking about a neighbor who we, what if I have a neighbor who I disagree with about everything? I could still love and have community and charity with that neighbor. However, we've got to understand something. That when we talk about what does it mean to be God's people, we don't define that. God defines that. And God defines that as it being foundational to Christ as the cornerstone. And so, yes, this theology is exclusive, meaning... That if you don't believe in Christ, then Scripture says you're not a part of His people. And I know that sounds exclusive, and it is exclusive. But here's the good news, is that it's exclusive, meaning that Christ is the only way for salvation. That Christ is the only, only other cornerstone. There is no other foundation that will stand, but Christ is the only one. But the good news is, is that Christ's love and His family that is called the church and the gospel invites you into that family. That He invites you in to be a part of this building that is called the church. He invites you to be a part of what is going on. But we must be clear, and Peter is being clear, and as we here at New Hope, we love and care for a lot of things. Our mission statement, we're engaging our city with the love of Jesus when we relate to the time. We want to engage in our community. But we've got to get something. If Christ is not our foundation, then we're no longer a church. Because church is not a 501c3 organization with the state. That may be part of it legally here in New York or whatever, but a church is a people, and this is what he's getting at. And truth number one, Christ is our foundation to that church, but truth number two, people are the church. Pretty, I've, I've already kind of said it, you know, like I've been saying it, but people are the church. He says this in verse five, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. People are the church. I say that in opposition or negation to 
what is often thought of, whether we would say it, but in practice we often live it, that church is not a place and church is not an event. Now, I know because of our English language, we can't help but to say, hey, I'm going to church tonight. You're using church as an event there, right? Or, or I'm going to the church. You're describing church as a place, as a building. And although that is correct English, it's actually really bad theology, right? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't ever say that because church, I do go to church. And I will continue to use that phrase, I will go to church. Because it's a lot shorter than I go to a worship gathering, which is actually probably the correct way to say it or whatever. But here's the point. I'm not saying you can't say I'm going to church or I'm going to the church. But I want us to make it clear that nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere do we see the language of church or defined as the theology of the church, ever defined as an event or as a place. It's always defined as a group of people redeemed by God. we got to get this, that people are the church. So when he makes this statement that you are being built up as a spiritual house, he's referring to the body of Christ, another language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, that we are the body of Christ. Here it's used as a building. It's all, both of those are extremely illustrative to show that we are one in Christ, that we are united to Him as a people, that we are a family. We're not just a community that gets along. We're a family, that we're blood family, and the blood being the blood of Jesus. Like, we are a family. People are the church, not the church being a place, and not the church being a event. Now, I will, once again, I'm not going to ever correct you by saying you're going to church, you're going to the church. I still use that language because that's just good English, naturally. But let's not use that language to confuse that church happens on Sunday night at 4 o'clock. Church doesn't happen on Sunday night at 4 o'clock because church isn't an event. Church is a people that you live out. It's an identity. It's who you are. You be the church. You don't go to the church. Now, we talk about this and we say this, and, and this is one of the reasons why I emphasize the importance of us living in community with one another. This is one of the reasons why I emphasize community groups. And so you have a handout in your announcement sheet talking about community groups. Now, I want us to get something. I want to think about something. We have, to contrast two things, we have a worship gathering on Sunday nights at 4 and 6 o'clock. And we have community groups that meet and gather in different places all throughout the week at different times. Now, I want to be clear about something. The worship gathering as an event, or the community group gathering as events, as an event, neither are better or worse, in my opinion, than the other, right? Okay? It's not worship gatherings most important than community groups. And it's not, even of themselves, community group is better than worship gatherings. But listen to this. If we really believe that the church is a people that do life together, that pray together, that worship together, that encourage one another, that knows what's going on in each other's life, that disciples one another and is being discipled, that carries one another's burdens, that serves one another, that shares possessions. You, to share possessions and to really know what's going on in people's lives, you've got to really be in people's lives, right? So that being what the definition of church is, is 
what we're after. It's what we're longing for, right? We don't want to just be a church that has an event or goes to a place or has just a gathering once a week. We want a church that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we're being the church on mission. We're being the church in encouragement. We're being the church in prayer. We're all of those things, accountability, discipleship. We want to be the church. So with that being said, where do those two things happen practically? Well, they happen here and they happen in community groups, right? And, but here's, here's why I would say if you only could choose one, why I think you should choose community groups. Not because community groups are better in and of themselves, but because I do believe, because community groups is an avenue in which you can be kneecapped to kneecap in a more intentional way, you're more likely to live out what is defined as the church in the New Testament. So if you go, you know what, Pastor Jonathan, I have one hour a week to give you. One, you're too busy if you only have one hour a week to give to the body of Christ. And that's unhealthy. Right, So let me just start there with that. But let's say, if that's all you got to start, then hear me say, I think you should choose a community group. Because you all are sitting in rows facing me. I'm talking, you're not. And we're not having conversations about what's going on in your life much. But that's what we need. Yes, we need teaching God's word. Yes, we need worship. I'm not minimizing any of those things. And we will do that in our worship gathering. And we'll do that in our community groups. But a lot of times, I'm finding as a pastor, I, or just as a Christian, I need people that, that know me well enough that when I walk in the door, hey, how's your week? My week's been okay. You're lying to me, right? Tell me what's going on. Like, I need someone to know that I'm lying, right? Right? And I'm not intentionally lying, but we all do that. Yeah, it's been, a, it's been an okay week. Okay, I know something's not right with you. Why? Because I know you. I know you. And families know one another. And this is a family. A family looks at a brother like I would one of my brothers all the time and call him out. Because I love him and I want to help him. And when he's making a muck of his life, I let him know it. We're in middle school and I'm I'm always correcting my brother. And he used to say he had three parents. He's always making fun of me. Saying I was his third parent, right? But we need that. And listen to me. I love Sunday nights with all that I have. I do. But I know I need more than just this from you. And you need more than just this from me. We need one another. Because the church is not an event we go to. The church is not a building we go to. The church is a people. Now praise the Lord for this building. And praise the Lord that we can gather in this setting. This is not bad. However... If this is it, then I promise you, you're missing out on the better part of what it means to be a part of the family of Christ. And so it's with that I challenge, and with that I say, I want to encourage you to look over these community groups and consider joining one of these community groups. Not, listen to me, not because it's the better Christian thing to do. No, no guilt trip here, none at all. No guilt trip. I'm not selling you. I'm not a salesperson in New York that just is trying to sell you something. I'm not that. I'm as your brother in Christ, as your pastor, pleading with you to let you know the richness of what it means to be the body of Christ being built up is to know Christ's foundation first and then to know the body in which you're a member. To be intentional. To serve. To give away to come together 
and do life together. And so I want to encourage you, would you do do that? Now, uh, Pastor Andy's going to give during the announcements or whoever's giving announcements, I think it's maybe Tim. And if it's not Tim, I just put you on the spot. I don't know who's doing it. But who's ever doing announcements is going to kind of just tell you what to do with this. You can um, fill it out. It's kind of self-explanatory. Put it in the offering plate, turn it in, give it to us. Um, But we want you to take this step. Now, in the past, we've not had really honestly enough community groups built up to where we had enough room for 100%. But we're really close to that now. And so if you, we end up filling up community groups and we realize, hey, we don't all fit, then we have enough leaders being trained that we can begin to multiply and make new community groups. So there's not an excuse anymore. There's not room. There is room. And so we can make that work. Now, here's what I want to do. Um, just kind of segue, uh, we're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a second. I'm going to invite Andy and the band in just a second to come back up. But we skip the greeting in between worship and the sermon intentionally. Because here's what I want to do. Um, Raphael, I'm gonna put you, I didn't plan this, so I'm going to put you on the spot. Can you, in a second, when we start, put a five-minute countdown on the screen? And I want you to spend five minutes. It's going to feel like eternity for you introverts, I know. But I want you to spend five minutes and talk to one another in this room. I genuinely meet people. If you don't know their names, guess what? I don't know all of your names. Just throw it out there. You don't know everybody else's names. No one's going to offend it if we forget your name. Some of you have been gone for summer break for a while. And, uh-oh, sorry, I forgot your name or whoever. Go up, introduce yourself. Meet people that you don't know. Have conversations. Ask about their life. And it's not rushed. You have five minutes. You have an opportunity you have an opportunity for you to go, you know what? I need some prayer. Would you pray for me? Absolutely. And what does it look like for us to spend time praying for another, encourage one another, to meet someone? Oh, you live right down the street. Why don't you come over for dinner tonight? Like, I don't care where this, where this goes. I want it to go. But before we do, if you are a community group leader or a host, will you stand up? Would you do that? Putting you on the spot. Putting you on the spot. Community group leader or a host in the room. And now we have some that are downstairs. Um, so they're not all here. I'm letting you see. So if you're not in a community group and you don't really know what's going on with names here and you just want to go meet someone and ask them about what's going on, um, then just I want you to see their faces. Feel free to introduce yourself and ask about their community group if you would like to do that. Okay? With that being said, will you all stand? And we're going to take five minutes to greet and love on one another and encourage one another in this time. All right.